Today's Auto Line is coming to you from the Frankfurt Motor Show. And joining me on today's program are three top industry executives, including Ian Robertson from BMW, Jonathan Browning from Volkswagen, and Johan Denison from Audi. Stick around, we'll be back right after this. I'm with Jonathan Browning right now, the president and CEO of Volkswagen of America, also representing the Volkswagen Group in That's the right. NAFTA region. Yep. And Jonathan, even though we're at the Frankfurt Auto Show right now, and this is a big market for Volkswagen in Germany, a lot of action's taking place in NAFTA, especially in the United States. Yep. This is one of the first times we've seen Volkswagen put so much, really, emphasis on the American market. And especially with your new plant in Chattanooga and the new Passat coming out, tell us a little bit about why Volkswagen is putting so much emphasis in the American market. Well, you're absolutely right, John. First of all, I mean, it's, it's always good to be back in VW's home market here in Germany, and it is a tremendous opportunity to see everything that's going on on a global basis and, and see really the, the scale of the, the machine, the, the organization that we've got behind us in the U.S. And, and VW have made a very, very clear commitment to the U.S. market, to the North American region in total. It's really uh, way back in, in 2007 uh, when the group said the U.S. is going to continue to be if not the most important, the second most important market. You second can to argue, China. Second to China. It's going to continue to be, and we're simply underperforming in that market uh, over a period of time. So what do we need to do differently? And so there was a clear plan laid out, and here we were uh, just prior to, to the recession, commitment made to build a $1 billion plant in Chattanooga, another $3 billion investment in terms of new products and infrastructure. Then the recession, recession hit, but I think you know it, it's a great signal in terms of the seriousness of the organization to the U.S. market that even through the recession, there was no stepping back from that commitment. And so really a big commitment that's seen through even this recession period. And of course, one of the reasons for that is that Volkswagen has a very bold goal of becoming the number one automaker in the world by 2018. And the only way you're going to get there is if you perform well in the American market. Volkswagen, yeah. of course, does well in Europe, Latin America. China is number one, really but not in the U.S. What I'm impressed by is what you just touched on is really, I don't know if designing product for the American market is right, but certainly tweaking it for mm -hmm. the American market. The new Passat being the shining example of that. Explain a little bit of what you did to that car to make it perhaps sell better in the U.S. Yeah, first of all, John, I think one of the key points to note is when we set out the goal for global leadership, it was leadership rather than just number one in sales. Number one in sales is a product of some of those global automotive leadership goals that we have, leading quality, leading customer satisfaction, leading employer. So it's a very broad-based leadership ambition that the group has across the world. Now, in terms of the U.S. market, some very specific things have been done apart from the plant, but also, as you say, tailoring the product for the market. And that, that, that means making sure that we're able to put our products right into the heart of the segments in which they compete. We really started that trend with Jetta, and we've seen tremendous progress. I mean, Jetta sales, Jetta sedan sales this year, year-to-date, up over 70%, so a really remarkable success. 70% is an amazing number, and of course, one of the things that you did was reprice the product 
you know, you lowered the base price, but I hear that the transaction prices are just about where the old one was. Exactly. So in the case of Jetta, what we wanted to do was bring the entry price down so it was more affordable for a new client base, but not change the shape of the overall profile of the vehicle in the in the segment. And so average transaction price, medium price actually is pretty much head on to where the previous generation was and that's even before we, we introduced the top of the line GLI. So that, that Jetta strategy is rounding out nicely and now we've got yeah, Passat coming into the market as well, very specifically designed in Germany, built in America for US customers and um, yeah, still early days, formal launch happens in two weeks time but all the early indications are um, yeah, very positive reaction. We've had some very good group test reports from the journalists that have driven it. And we think we've got a, a really compelling proposition, especially with the, the new TDI diesel, clean diesel, first diesel into that segment in the market. I imagine by lowering the base price, it increases the people who might consider shopping the car because so many people do all their intelligence gathering, as yeah. it were, on the internet. And if your base price isn't where they're comparing to other cars, you're not even on the list. Exactly. That's got to have played a key yeah. role in boosting Jetta sales as much as 70%. That's right. And when we looked at what did it take for Volkswagen to grow in the U.S., uh, there's a real uh, warmth towards the brand Volkswagen in the U.S. But there were too many people that said, this isn't a vehicle for me. And why was that the case? Because they thought the initial entry price was too high or the cost to own was too high. So we did two things. One, we realigned the product strategy so the entry price points were more affordable. And secondly, we're putting three years of carefree maintenance, all the uh, scheduled uh, servicing costs covered. And so that's really taken away two big obstacles, at least in people's minds, so the perception of you know, why would it not be a brand for me. And that, that's really had a, a big change now. You see it with Jetta. Sure, you're going to see it with Passat, and then one of the other great stories of the show is is the, the continuing rollout of Beetle and, and uh, the, the the affection and love for that vehicle in the U.S. market as well. Let's talk about two of the concept car, or mm -hmm. actually, one is not a concept car. One is that is uh, that are debuting at this show. One is the Up, yep. which will sell here in Europe for under ten thousand euros. Any idea or thoughts to bringing a car at that level of a price to the U.S. market? Well, you know, uh, both the Polo and the Up are, let's say, currently beyond the lower limit of the, the offer that we have in the market in the U.S. And, yeah, these are products that certainly could come into the U.S. market at some point in time. At the moment, the segment sizes are, are not large enough to support that. And with those sorts of vehicles, really, you would want to be able to produce them within the NAFTA area for them to be economically viable. And so, you know, over time, those vehicles certainly could come into the U.S. market, but that'll really be led by the, the customer demand for them. And, and then quickly, maybe you've already answered this, there's a concept here, car here, the Nils, that is only a yeah. one-seater. I think this is the third version of a one-seater we've seen from Volkswagen. What are your yeah. thoughts on that? You know, I, I, th I think that's got a great uh, opportunity in the future mobility landscape. I mean, it's clearly a very for a very specific use, but it does deliver in terms of fun to drive, but fun to drive and sustainable motoring. And it, it, it can ha certainly play a role in markets where you know, the alternative of public transport for individual commutes is, is not so readily available. I think it can work. It's maybe not a, a concept that will work in absolutely in today's market, but certainly part of that future landscape. Well, very good. Jonathan Browning, thanks for stopping by and bringing us up to date with what Volkswagen's doing in the U.S. market. It's my pleasure, John.
Right now, I'm with Ian Robertson, a member of the board of BMW, also in charge of sales globally for the company. Mm -hmm. And by the way, how are sales going? Pretty good. We've had the strongest six months in our history, which uh, always makes me feel good as head of sales and marketing. And uh, whilst I think we will see some slowdown in the, the second half, and we've got a lot of changeovers coming, the one series and of course the three series is not far away now, we're cautiously optimistic, despite maybe a few economic bumps in the road. The luxury sector seems to be a little bit immune from the global recession that's hitting many parts of the world. Uh, is that how you read it as well? Yeah, and you know, we see plenty of markets which are moving very, very strongly. And the, the premium segment is moving much faster than, of course, the, the volume segment. China being a, an obvious case in point. But if I look at Brazil, if I look at Russia, if I look at Korea, if I look at Turkey, they're all moving very, very strongly on the premium segment. And that gives us, uh, I think, more of this optimistic outlook as well. And uh, speaking of optimistic, it seems that BMW is very optimistic about electric cars. You've got two new models that you're dis uh, displaying mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. Explain a little bit why BMW is being so aggressive with electrics. Well, you know, Efficient Dynamics has been around now for seven odd years for BMW. And explain that for people who may we, not be uh, you know, familiar with We decided with that term. We decided that just in the same way that safety was an important issue in the premium segment in the 80s, you know, anti-lock brakes came in and then 10 years later they went on to all cars. We viewed sustainability as part of the premium offering uh, as we actually came into the 2002, 3, 4 era. And we put a lot of investment, around about 1.2 billion, into taking down the CO2, but at the same time, in most cases, increasing the performance at the same time. So we reduced our CO2 footprint more than any other manufacturer. We lead the European premium manufacturers. In fact, we're ahead of a lot of the volume manufacturers, which tells you something about our technology. And the next logical step in that, of course, is hybridization and then on to full electric. But for full electric, we've decided to do something subtly different. First of all, it'll be a sub-brand. So it will be a brand positioned under the mother brand like M is for the high-performance derivatives, but also to grow a car from the ground up. Most electric cars that are around today are conventional combustion engine cars with an engine replaced by an electric motor. We're not going to do that. We're growing one from carbon fiber. It has a totally new uh, drive concept. It will be made in uh, a new manufacturing environment. And we will probably find new ways of actually allowing the customers to enjoy the mobility it brings. So it's a revolution in many respects. And I want to get into the carbon fiber in just a moment. But explain this new sub-brand, the i-brand is mm -hmm. what you're calling it, is mm -hmm. it not? Absolutely. And you know, we took the choice to have a sub-brand, not an independent brand and to start to communicate it around about two years before launch. So we announced it April or so of this year. Um, I think it has a, a unique DNA uh, for the company. I think people are beginning to see and feel and touch it. Uh, the phrase born electric, uh, whilst a fantastic marketing phrase, I would say that, wouldn't I? But as I said, it is designed to have a car which is uniquely electric. And that is part of this sub-brand technology and the substance that underpins it going into the future. And so is the thinking that if you have a sub-brand I, that the public will catch on to the fact that this is just an electric car and not some electric version of a BMW? Yeah, I think, you know, but you know, the mother brand is all important as well. So that was the important element of having it attached to BMW. And the technology that's developed won't always be under a BMW offering. It could be under a Mini, it could be under a Rolls-Royce as well. 
Let's get into the carbon fiber because that's so fascinating. Mm. It's been used in race cars for almost 25 years mm -hmm. now. The aerospace industry has been into it for a couple mm -hmm. of decades as well. But as you know, it's a very expensive material. And while you can probably quote it in kilograms and euros better, mm -hmm. I think uh, in dollars and pounds, it's about 50 cents a pound for steel, a dollar fifty for aluminum, something mm -hmm. like $5 a pound for mm -hmm. carbon fiber much, much more expensive. How do you mm -hmm. justify the extra cost? Well, the, the point you make is absolutely valid, of course, which is why up until now we've used it for you know, exotic parts, spoilers, seat backs, maybe roofs, uh, parts that were highly visible and the customer could say, yes, I can understand the value for that. But in a business case, it never really work, worked as a, a weight offset. However, with a battery now, which is an extremely heavy and very expensive uh, product, for every kilogram you save, of course, you can take some of the battery power out or increase your range. So now the business case has a validity to it. And we're proving that not only we can uh, find a viable proposition, but also carbon fiber has so many other properties that you, know, you can actually take fewer parts to build a car as well because the structural integrity is much higher. Um, you can actually have a much more flexible way of manufacturing because you don't need to have a body shop, you don't need to have a big welding shop. In our case as well, we have very little paint shop as well. So all of these elements are coming together to give you a car which is designed for a specific purpose and has this offset which carbon fiber delivers upon. That's a great point. I've not heard anybody make that trade-off. Batteries are expensive, yeah. so if you can use less battery, you can put that into the carbon Absolutely. fiber cost-wise. Absolutely. And you know, we chose to build the carbon fiber plant in Moses Lake in Washington State because there, it's almost the cheapest electricity in the world. It's totally renewable. It works out about $30 a kilowatt hour compared to 80 euros in Germany. Hmm. So, you know, again, we're thinking this holistically. We will then ship that to our German factories. They will be wind power driven and solar power driven. So the whole CO2 uh, footprint of this car has been thought through from concept right the way through to uh, the final ownership. That's a fascinating point to make. Again, you mentioned sustainability mm -hmm. earlier. That's great mm -hmm. to hear you thinking of the to total life cycle of mm -hmm. the vehicle. Uh, but you've got your own factory, you mentioned. It looks like BMW is getting a little bit more vertically integrated, which is sort of against the grain of where this industry has been going for quite some decades now. Yeah, Why? You know, we, we took a decision that this was a, a leading edge technology. Um, there is very little uh, carbon fiber being used in high volume. So we wanted to be part of that development. We wanted to bring our expertise into SGL Carbon and to take their expertise of the carbon business. So we put roughly $500 million down. Uh, we will develop that business for ourselves at some point in the future. Maybe we will uh, allow other people to, uh, to be part of this as well. But we wanted to actually take that initiative right from the start and to actually bring this to market in a high volume sense for BMW and in particular the iBrand. I'm sure this is going to help the electric car that you're developing mm -hmm. uh, immensely, but I think from a practical standpoint, some consumers may worry, what about repairing it? If it gets in an accident mm -hmm. or dinged up, mm -hmm. how is the dealership going to be prepared to, to work with carbon fiber? Well, that's a good point. And you know, initially we will have expertise in certain dealerships around the world. Uh, and we will lay that out in a, in a way country by country. Now bear in mind we're aiming these vehicles at uh, highly metropolitan urban areas as well so that gives us an easier proposition in which to have that core of expertise. Because It's not only carbon fiber, it's also high voltage, 
So from that point of view, uh, you won't see it in every dealership uh, right across the BMW world. You will see it specifically, at least initially. Now, since you're putting this in electric cars and you'll have your own carbon fiber facility, might it make its way into conventional cars as well? Yeah, we will use carbon fiber in many aspects in the years to come. You know, it's very easy to see where you can use it, suspension components. Uh, they are all now coming to market. And this was the beauty, of course, of having our own business where we could take the learning and to turn it into high volume capacities, which of course makes it a viable proposition. One quick last question, because we're down to the very end here. BMW's talking about doing front-wheel drive, which mm -hmm. to some purists is a heresy. And we see a lot of small cars here. Mm -hmm. What's the future for BMW in both those technologies? You know, the, the Mini brand has always been front-wheel drive, and uh, I've never heard anyone say, well, that doesn't drive and perform and isn't a great go-kart feeling. So, you know, we have some expertise in the front-wheel drive segment. Taking that the next step, we have a UKL strategy, a small car strategy, where we will bring between 8 and 11 models, Minis and BMWs, off a new front-wheel drive platform. I can assure you that you will get all of the BMW or all of the Mini you ever expected in a new uh, platform. So rear-wheel drive is still part of our business. It will still be underpinning many of the BMW models, in fact, most of them. But we'll also have some new cars, some new segments, using the front-wheel drive platform. Real good. Ian Robertson, thanks so much for bringing us up to speed, and I can't wait to drive one of those electric cars. Good to talk to you. Okay. Thanks. Right now I'm joining Johan de Nijsen, the president and CEO of Audi USA, but we're in the Audi display here, and there's all kinds of people milling around. This is a popular spot. I'm very grateful for that, yes. Johan, Audi is so red hot in the U.S. market right now, globally too, but mm. the U.S. is where you've got more catching up to do than say in Europe or China, other places. Right. How goes the battle? It's going well. You know, uh, globally, Audi has now moved into the number two position in the luxury car stakes. Uh, so the world's... That's an important statement. Most Americans don't realize I that. think it would surprise a lot of Americans. So the world has a new number two, and uh, we firmly got our sights on the one and a half million vehicle global sales goal by 2015. But in order to do that, the U.S. has to do its job. And uh, I'm grateful to say that uh, we're kind of halfway through a 10-year plan that we embarked on five, five years ago to address our business in the U.S. And uh, we've built a very solid foundation now. All-time record sales last year, uh, eight consecutive months of new sales records this year. We've doubled our market share in space of five years, and uh, our dealers tell us, give us more cars. And, and you're getting them. Uh, you know, an important introduction this year is the A7, and here at the Frankfurt Show, you're showing the performance models, the S models. Tell us a little right. bit about those. Well, I think this is an important next step uh, in the evolution of the brand in the U.S. We've built a very solid volume core now around the A4 and the Q5 models, but uh, we've now launched the A8, our new flagship, the A7 and the A6, to really build a second uh, volume core with the highest center of gravity. And the S models being the sporty derivatives of those cars, the S6, the S7 and the S8, will really take uh, that emotional appeal as well as uh, take the brand a little bit further up market as uh, we continue to position the brand as strongly as we are already positioned in Europe. I always thought the sport models were itty-bitty little sales, but you're saying within some of the lines, the, the take rate 
the people buying the sport model is rather high. That's right. Um, in fact, uh, in our A4 lineup, uh, the S4 flagship model is already uh, beginning to drift towards 20% of total sales of, uh, of that model. And uh, the S5 has been a perennial bestseller in short supply since the day it was launched. And uh, we expect to see a similar trend for uh, the S6, the S7, and the S8. These are important mainstream cars now for Audi. Now, I imagine that not only does it help the profitability of the brand, the sport models really help build the passion for it as well. I think that um, in order for Audi to be recognized in the U.S. as not only a luxury automaker, but one of uh, high-performance luxury cars, we need to have these sport models. And we took some steps to addressing that by introducing our sports car family, the TT, the S5s, uh, the A5, and of course uh, the R8. But uh, those are low-volume sports cars. Uh, now it moves us into the more mainstream where you've got high-performance high luxury automobiles, and uh, that's the role of the S models. And of course, to round that off, the RS models. One of the trends that we see here at the Frankfurt Show is both in smaller cars, commuter cars or city cars, you might call them, and electric cars. What does Audi have in store in the U.S. market along those lines? I think we uh, were instrumental in beginning to establish the notion of a compact luxury car uh, going as far back as 2005 when we introduced our A3 as a, a new entry model for the brand in the U.S. That market segment, however, is still uh, under development. I think um, for many reasons the U.S. luxury car buyer is not yet as open to the idea of a compact luxury car as, for example, is the case in Europe. But nevertheless, uh, the focus for the, for the industry, the way it's developing into the future, uh, particularly with electrically powered cars where weight is the enemy of driving range, uh, we will see downsizing of, of cars, particularly for the commuting role. And I think electrically powered cars are well situated uh, to capture uh, a market from those buyers who, who have a relatively short commute in, in dense urban traffic, uh, who don't need a large car. And that's where the downsizing will come to play. But that is going to remain a very small part of, of, of the market. And I think that uh, all the attention that these cars are getting perhaps exceeds the true market potential, certainly in the medium term. Audi's been going red hot, as you talked about. There's a lot of economic uncertainty, especially in the U.S. market right now, maybe more so here in Europe, but what's your outlook as we go, move into 2012? We continue to be quite uh, optimistic. Um, we've seen the luxury market this year uh, develop around 6 to 7% growth over the previous year, and I think that'll be sustained into, into 2012. So we'll be calling the luxury market for next year at around uh, 1.35 million, uh, up from the 1.2 million from this year. And uh, we certainly expect to continue our share gains as well. So uh, Audi, next year, will have double-digit growth again. That's amazing. So you're growing it much faster than the overall market is growing. Certainly. So, you know, the luxury market this year has grown by around uh, 9%. Uh, Audi sales up year-to-date 15%. And uh, if we can... Uh, uh, have the ability to, to bring our supply a little bit more aligned into the market demand. Our dealers will be a lot happier, and I think there's no doubt we're leaving a lot of uh, potential sales uh, on the table right now, as uh, we certainly have tight supply across all our car lines. You mentioned your dealers. They're as critical a part to your success as the cars themselves are. What are you doing with the dealers that may be new or different? 
I think absolutely. Our dealers have been phenomenal partners and a key element uh, of the resurgence of the brand in the U.S. Uh, we went down a, a difficult journey with our dealers uh, a few years ago, but uh, we laid out a plan for them. And we said, believe in us, this is the future. These are the products we're going to bring, but we need you to invest. We need you to invest in facilities and people to uh, create an exclusive customer experience. You know, you cannot tackle some of the world's most successful luxury brands with part-time salesmen and part-time service technicians. You need full-time commitment and dedication to the needs and expectations of the luxury car buyer. Our dealers have invested well over a billion dollars in uh, developing the franchise over the last five years. And uh, if we look at where we are today, the Audi franchise uh, is now one of the most profitable franchises in the US. And success breeds success. This is attracting better quality people. It's attracting even new investment. And I think that uh, provides a very solid platform for us to continue our growth into the US in conjunction to a phenomenal product portfolio and the product pipeline that is absolutely full. People also ask me a lot about how's the quality at Audi? Because again, going back in years past, beautiful cars, but there could have been some problems. Where does that stand now? You know, we've been paying a great deal of attention. Uh, Audi is a company of engineers. And uh, to some extent, we indulge a little bit. We create cars for ourselves, cars that we are proud of. And certainly the quality performance area is something that uh, as the close attention of the top executives. For us, it's, it's, it's always measured by number of faults per car uh, gone wrong, and also the cost per car in terms of the warranty. Um, and we've seen a rapid escalation in terms of customer satisfaction, people who are familiar with Audi. Uh, we've seen commensurately year on year on year declines in the number of faults per car and in dollars per car in, uh, to, to, to correct uh, warranty issues. So I think those are the fundamental measures of true product quality. And uh, I'm delighted that all these indicators are taking us in the right way. And we've also then seen uh, a strong bounce in customer loyalty. Uh, customer loyalty today is uh, one of the stronger uh, elements in, in the luxury segment. Uh, we're not yet where we want to be. I'm very ambitious, but uh, it's moving in the right direction. Well, that's good to hear. Johan Denison, thanks so much for taking the time to bring us up to speed as to where Audi is. Thank you, John. Always welcome. I hope you enjoyed today's program from the Frankfurt Motor Show, and I really want to thank my guests, Ian Robertson from BMW, Jonathan Browning from Volkswagen, and Johan Denison from Audi. Thanks. We'll see you next week.